Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this here in Chicago on Monday, November 13, 2023. In recent programs, we've been getting into the matter of the salvation of the soul, how we as the believers in Christ need to be faithful throughout our entire life in order to be prepared to see the Lord when he returns. And this is not an easy topic for a lot of Christians because we've been told our whole life, well, all I, if I believe in Jesus, then I have the assurance of my salvation for eternity, which is true, as I've stressed, tried to stress that a lot. But we don't have the assurance of where we're going to be spending the millennium. For that, we have to pay the price to follow Christ. And that's not easy, as I say, for a lot of believers to hear. And because of that, I'm, I don't want this to become too heavy a topic. I, I was talking with one young brother about this who was a little concerned, uh, one brother who listens to the podcast. And I told him a story that Witness Lee shared. And, of course, he was one who very much stressed our need to run run the race as the believers in Christ. He was talking with a sister one time, and she expressed her concern about whether or not she could be an overcomer. And Brother Lee's word to her was very good. He said, Sister, just love the Lord. You'll be okay. And that's really so. If we are those who really love the Lord, who are really following Christ, we'll be okay. We need to be warned. We need to have the incentive to run the race. But the point is not simply to run the race. The point is to love the Lord. And if we are those who love the Lord, who love his appearing, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, then for sure when the Lord comes back, we'll be okay. But a lot of Christians do need to hear this word so that they wake up and realize they do need to be much more serious about their Christian life. But in order to keep this sharing from becoming too heavy, there's another point I, I want to make about this and that really needs to be said, which is as much as I am burdened for this matter, it's not the central thing in the Bible. It's not what is really on God's heart. It's an important topic. It's something Christians absolutely need to hear about, but it's not the central thing. And some people, when they get this teaching, they begin to see it for themselves. They kind of make it the central thing. The whole point of my Christian life is to run the race, is to be an overcomer. But that's not really the central thing. The central thing very much relates to this matter of loving the Lord. And that's what I want to talk about in this episode of the podcast. What is the central thing the Bible shows us? And actually, in doing so, and the reason, one of the reasons why I have for wanting to share about that in this edition of the podcast is because it explains what it means to run the race. In the previous episode, I really stressed we need to be those who run the Christian race. So we experience the salvation of the soul. But we never really defined, okay, how do I do that? What does it mean to run the Christian race? And so if we see what the central thing is in the whole Bible, and we explain that a little bit, then we're going to have an idea of what it means to run the Christian race And it also means we're going to have the central view that will enable us to put these different matters in the right perspective. So that's what we'll be covering in this episode of the podcast. And I'm not going to be too mysterious about it. I'm going to say right up front what this central thing is. And then we'll spend the rest of the podcast first defining that a little bit and then explaining how it relates to our salvation. 
So very simply, you can state it in a very brief way. The central thing in the entire Bible, what the whole Bible shows us from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible is God desires to be one with man and to make man one with him. You see that in Genesis, the very beginning, how God created man. You see it at the beginning of the New Testament when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And you see the ultimate consummation of that desire in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's only when you see this, that this is the central thing that the Bible is really all about. That's when you know what the Bible is all about. That's when you really are clear about what is God's purpose. And that's what you can be clear of. That's when you can be clear about in your own life. What is the purpose of my life? A lot of Christians have a question about that. What does God want me to do? God wants you to be one with him. That's what he really desires. That's why he gave you his life when you believed in Christ. His purpose is for you to be one with him. Now, they may, you may have specific leadings, whether you know, to go to school here or there, to take this job or that job, uh, how to serve the Lord. You may have specific leadings in all of these things. But the purpose, the basic desire God has for you is that you would be one with him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, the Apostle John is sharing about the anointing. Listen to what he says. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone teach you. But as his anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and even as it has taught you, abide in him. So here, what does the anointing teach us? Does it teach us be a school teacher, be a salesman, be a ship captain, who knows? No, it teaches us to abide in Christ. That's what we should be doing as believers in Christ. We should be abiding in Christ and allowing him to abide in us. That's when we, in our experience, are really one with Christ. So that's just one example. But that is, again, the central thing. God desires to be one with man. It's impossible to overstate how important this is for understanding the entire Bible. Yes, there are many important themes of the Bible. Redemption, the theme of redemption, a great theme in the Bible, what we've been covering recently, the matter of running the Christian race. Uh, some people like to stress God's sovereignty. There's a lot of history in the Bible. So many different topics you can talk about. Morality, uh, a lot of wisdom about family life and marriage life and, and raising children, that kind of thing. But the central thing in the Bible, what is always on God's heart, is this desire for God to make man one with himself. So that is God's purpose. Then we need to ask, okay, how does God carry out this purpose? What does the Bible show us about that? And again, no need to be too mysterious about it, even though I have to say the process itself is very mysterious. But what the Bible shows us can be stated in a pretty succinct way. He does this by imparting himself into us as life so that we become partakers of his divine nature. And then this life works in us to transform us into the image of Christ, as we see in the New Testament. And so, in a nutshell, that's really how we run the Christian race. It's by allowing God to impart himself into us as life, to conform us to the image of his Son through this process 
of transformation. And of course, that's just a very bird's eye view of this whole process. There's so many different ways to look at this in the Bible and in the New Testament, but that's what we're going to try to cover in the rest of this program. First of all, what is God's purpose? Namely, to make us one with himself. And then secondly, how does he carry out that purpose? So let's begin by looking at very briefly, and all you can do, of course, in a one-hour podcast at the most is to look at these matters very briefly. But let's look at very briefly what is God's purpose according to the Bible in relation to man. And where we first see that in the Bible is at the very beginning of the Bible in how God created man. That's in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what this shows us is that God created man in his own image and likeness. And he did this with the express purpose of entering into man as his life. That's why later on Jesus Christ could become a man. He could not have become any of the animals. They simply had no way to express who God was. But because man was created in the image and likeness of God, man does have the innate capacity, the innate potential to express the divine attributes and virtues. And that's why God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. I love what Andrew Murray has to say about uh, Genesis chapter 126. This is from his devotional, The Secret of the Faith Life. It's uh, on the first day. He does these uh, one-month devotionals. This is the very first day, and it's under the title of The Image of God, and he quotes this statement from Genesis chapter 126. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So listen to what Mr. Murray says about this. Here we have the first thought of man. I love how he puts that. This is the very first thought you see of man in the Bible. Here we have the first thought of man, his origin and his destiny, entirely divine. God undertook the stupendous work of making a creature who is not God to be a perfect likeness of him in his divine glory. That is such a profound thought. Why did God make us in his image and likeness? Because he wants to have another being who is not God, who would have his perfect likeness in glory. Mr. Murray goes on. Man was to live in entire dependence on God and to receive directly and unceasingly from him the inflow of all that was holy and blessed in the divine being. God's glory, his holiness, and his love were to dwell in him and to shine out through him. That's why God created us in his image and likeness. What a stupendous work, as Mr. Murray says here. What a stupendous work God undertook when he created man. You hate to see today people, they they just wonder, why do I exist? Life seems so pointless. You have no idea how glorious your life could be if you turn to Christ and allow him to work in you what he originally desired. 
to make us the same as he is in terms of our life and nature so that we can be fully one with him. Just a marvelous, marvelous statement here from Mr. Murray. Now, I don't yet have this on my website, but probably I will uh, very soon because I, I want to make sure people can get this statement. It's so uh, important, I feel. So when I have that, uh, if it's not on at the time this podcast is released, I, I hope to have it on very soon. You can check back for the link uh, in the program description. So that's in Genesis chapter 1. Now, at the end of his statement here, Mr. Murray says this, Man was to live in entire dependence on God and to receive directly and unceasingly from him the inflow of all that was holy and blessed in the divine being. Where you really see that aspect of God's creation of man is in Genesis chapter 2. You could say that in regards to man, Genesis chapter 1 shows us what is God's purpose for man. And then Genesis chapter 2 shows us in principle the way God carries out his purpose for man. That's in chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this is a wonderful statement about man as well. We were created because God himself breathed himself into our being. Now, the Concise Bible Dictionary, which is published by Bible Truth Publishers, has a very, very good statement about this verse. I've always appreciated this in relation to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and God breathing himself into man. This is in the Concise Bible Dictionary's entry on soul. It's on uh, page 739 of that dictionary, if you have that. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and by this man was set in relation with God and cannot be really happy, separated from him, either in present existence or eternally. It is really so. God just set man in relation with himself by his act of breathing into man's nostrils the breath of life. This was not regeneration. But what it did do was to impart into us a human spirit that is capable of receiving the divine life and When that happened, man became a living soul. So there are three parts to our being. Our physical body, that was created first. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't because we became fallen. The physical body was created first. Then God breathed into us the breath of life. There's the human spirit. And when these two came together, the body and the spirit, man became a living soul. That's who we are. We are a living soul. We have a body outwardly. We have a spirit inwardly. And we have to be so clear about this to really understand how salvation works. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit more about this later on in the program. Then in verses 7, or rather in verses 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 2, God puts man in the Garden of Eden and it says God caused every tree to grow out of the ground, including the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in verse 15 it says God put man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it, Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So God uh, planted this garden, and he puts the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and close by you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then he says, Okay, I don't want you eating 
of the tree of the knowledge. He's not, he didn't say, I'm going to kill you if I'm going to judge you and destroy you. He's saying the natural consequence of eating of the tree of knowledge is going to be death because it's a kind of spiritual poison was in that tree. The Lord knew that, just like you would warn a child, stay away from the medicine cabinet. He knew what the consequence of eating that of that tree had to be. But he never told man not to partake of the tree of life. He wanted man to partake of the tree of life. That's what he said in verse 16. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. The only forbidden tree was the tree of knowledge. The tree of life was not forbidden. And we find this out for sure in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 22. After the fall, that's when the way to the tree of life was for the time being closed off. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So at that point, and only at that point, was the way to the tree of life closed off. If man had partaken of the tree of life, he would have received the divine life into him at that point. That's the spiritual significance of the tree of life. So many people realize there was a tree of knowledge in the, in the garden. And it's really striking because that indicates the Bible is really the word of God. It's exactly what, uh, what the Bible says. The tree of life, the way to the tree of life has been closed. So many people have no idea there was another tree in the garden besides the tree of knowledge. It's just been hidden from them. But the tree of life was there, and if we'd partaken of it, we would have received the divine life. Have you ever noticed something about the tree of life? It's also at the very end of the Bible. When you go to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, it says, He showed me a river of water of life, pure as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Praise the Lord. It's, it's there at the beginning and it's there at the very end. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life. Praise the Lord for that. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, God wants us to partake of his life. And in the middle of the Bible, in John 10, 10, there is one who came and who said, I came that they may have life. That's what the Bible is all about. God wants to give man his life to make us one with him, to bring us into relation with himself. That's the ultimate goal, really, is to bring us into relation with himself to make us fully one with him. That is what's on God's heart, saints, from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. So I don't think I have to say too much more about this. Of course, this one who came in the middle of the Bible to give us his life, that's Jesus Christ. That shows us how much God desires to be one with man to the point he himself became a man, even after the fall. He willingly took on the human flesh, what Calvin calls the stinking filth of our flesh, to become one with man. He didn't simply appear among men. He was actually born as a member of the human race. You can never separate God anymore from the human race. In the Old Testament, you had some appearances, but God was still separate from man, even though at that time he appeared as a man. But now that Jesus Christ has been born as a man, you can never separate God anymore from the human race. God has made himself one with man. 
Then he went to the cross, he died, and he rose up. And when he rose up, he uplifted the human nature he had taken on through the incarnation with his divine life so that his humanity was fully brought into his divinity. Through the incarnation, God became one with man. It's through the resurrection that man becomes one with God. That's why Acts 13.33 says, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. That's not talking about Christ in eternity past. It's talking about the resurrection. In resurrection, his humanity was begotten with his divine nature and uplifted so that it was brought into the divine nature. That's what it means for Christ to be glorified. And that's the process we're all going to follow. We'll say a little bit more about that later on in the program. But again, that's the extent to which God desires to become one with man. Then, of course, you have the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not talking about what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. I'm talking about the Lord's Prayer on the night he was betrayed. He prayed for the oneness among the believers and our oneness in the triune God. Listen to this prayer, and I'll just begin. This is John 17. I'll begin with verse 19 and read through verse 23. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who shall believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What a prayer is this, saints. What a prayer. You can see what's on the Lord's heart. He's praying this very shortly before he was betrayed. But he prayed for his believers to be one, and specifically he prayed for us to be one in the triune God. As verse 21 says, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Do you see what the Lord's asking for here? He wants us to be fully brought into the triune God. And then in verse 23, I in them and you in me. So we're dwelling in God and God is dwelling in us. That's the extent to which God wants to be one with us, saints. Adam could never have experienced this kind of oneness with the triune God. We may feel it would have been wonderful to be walking with God in the, in the Garden of Eden. And that's true. For sure it would have been. But it, it would be nothing compared to this kind of oneness with God where we're actually in God and God is in us because we have partaken of the divine life in nature. We can fully enter into glory with God as our dwelling place and he can dwell in us. Praise the Lord for that, saints. That's the kind of oneness the Lord was praying for on the night he was betrayed. And it really shows us again God's desire to fully bring us into oneness with himself. What a marvelous, marvelous desire this is. We could just never express just how wonderful, again to use Andrew Murray's word, how stupendous God's desire for man really is. And at the end of the Bible, you see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Revelation 21, 10. You know, at the beginning of the Bible, when God created man, he was walking with him in the garden. He could only appear to Adam. 
as another man, because Adam could not have taken it if God had appeared to him in his divine glory. But here, the New Jerusalem, which is a composition of all the believers from all the different ages, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, built up together into this marvelous city to be the bride of Christ and the dwelling place of God. This marvelous city has the glory of God. And so God can dwell in this city in his divine glory and fully manifest himself to all his believers and through them to the creation as a whole. That's the glory. That's the God's eternal destiny for us saints, to shine out the glory of God that has been wrought into our being as we live here on the earth so that we're fully one with God and we can express all of God's divine virtues and attributes. Praise the Lord for that, saints. What a marvelous destiny we have. It's beyond anything we could ever imagine. Any human mind could never conceive of such a glory and such a destiny for us as God's redeemed people. Praise the Lord, saints, for that. That's the ultimate consummation of our becoming one with God as the bride of Christ. Of course, to be the bride of Christ, we have to have the same life in nature. We couldn't marry him without the same life in nature, but that's what we're going to have, and we will be the bride of Christ together for eternity. Praise the Lord for that. Also, God's dwelling place. In fact, the New Jerusalem will be a mutual abode of God and man. We will dwell in God, and God will dwell in us. The fulfillment, really, of what the Lord talked about on the night he was betrayed in uh, John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. We do that in this age, but saints, how much more we're going to do that in eternity. Praise the Lord. So that's the ultimate consummation of our oneness with God is in the New Jerusalem at the end of the Bible. It's not going to heaven, saints. We really need to, oh, I just that devilish thought, we need to just reject it and realize our destiny as the believers in Christ is so much higher than that. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so to speak. It's a little ironic because people talk about going to heaven, but that's actually not. It's just a devilish concept that gets injected into believers to deceive them about what God is really after. What he really is has for us is so much greater than that, that we will be his expression for eternity and he will dwell in us and we will dwell in him for eternity. Praise the Lord for that. And I should add that in one of the recent podcasts, I did deal with this false teaching about going to heaven, and I entitled that The Heaven Drug, or Why I'm Not Going to Heaven, and I'll link to that again in the program notes below. So that, of course, is just a very, very brief thumbnail sketch of of God's purpose. When we come back after the break, then we'll talk about, okay, how is this purpose to be carried out in our lives today? I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So in the first part of the program, we saw that God's purpose is to make us one with himself and that he carries out this purpose by imparting his divine life into us. And so now in this part of the program, We want to see how does God impart his life into us? What does that mean for us? 
And this has to do with helping us understand what salvation really is. There's so much more involved in salvation than simply the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is so basic and so important and so crucial, but it is only the basic matter of our salvation, the foundational matter of our salvation. Based upon the fact that our sins are forgiven and that we're in Christ, God does a work in our being to fully conform us to the image of his Son. That's his goal, ultimately. Christians talk about you know, whether or not we're predestinated, but very often, when they're talking that way, they're talking about whether or not we're going to go to heaven. You know, again, that really evil concept. In the New Testament, what we see is that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's our destiny. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's our destiny. Not to go to heaven. Our destiny, what we are predestined for, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you see that also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Having predestined us to take our place as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So that's our destiny. That's the ultimate result of salvation in terms of our individual salvation. As the believers in Christ, and as a believer in Christ, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Praise the Lord, that's going to happen. And again, God does that by imparting his divine life into our being. Now, to understand how this process works, there's something very, very basic that we need to understand in terms of how we were created, how we were made. And that is that we are three-part beings, spirit, soul, and body. Now, there are teachers, and there always have been teachers throughout the history of the church, who have taught that we are beings of two parts. We have a body, and then inwardly we have a spirit and the soul. And the spirit and the soul are the same thing. They kind of emphasize maybe a little bit different aspects of our inner being. But they're the same thing, the spirit and the souls. And so you've always had in the church these two great schools of thought about who we are, whether we are three-part beings so that the spirit and the soul are two different parts of our being, or whether we are two-part beings, so that the spirit and the soul are basically the same thing. And among those who teach that we are two-part beings, that's basically, as I understand it, what the Catholic Church teaches. Reformed theologians really strongly teach, for the most part, we're two-part beings. But among those who teach that man is a three-part being, for sure the greatest teacher is the Apostle Paul. And I'm sorry to be so blunt and so direct about it, but that is simply a fact. You can argue about it if you want, but the writings of the Apostle Paul leave no question as to whether or not man is a two-part or a three-part being. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says it very directly. The God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no question whether or not man is a three-part being. Those who want to say that man is a two-part being turn the Christian life into a mental exercise. They don't understand the function of the spirit, the human spirit, in salvation. And the Bible is crystal clear. Man is a three-part being. You see this also in Paul's writings. If you And I, again, have no doubt that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, but you could say the writer to the Hebrews also makes it very clear. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and full of energy and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both the joints and the marrow and able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. So just like a sword can divide the joints and the marrow, even so, the word of God is able to discern, help us discern between what is of our soul and what is of our spirit. And the way it says it here, it is able to divide our soul and our spirit. And that fully proves these are two different aspects of our being. And I'll never forget the first time I noticed this verse. I'd been saved less than a year and I'd never heard a clear teaching about the three parts of man. But I just read it and it was obvious. Oh, I said, oh, so the spirit and the soul are two different parts of our being. Now, I didn't by any means understand the significance of that at that point, but just accepting here what the Bible says, the very clear word of the Bible, there's no question man is a three-part being. And we need to stress this because if you fail to understand that man is a three-part being, you can never really understand how salvation works. You just, you'll never have a clear understanding of the full process of salvation. I don't care how many degrees you have how much you know you know Greek. If you don't have this basic grasp of this fundamental truth in the Bible, you'll never understand salvation. Just like you could never understand who God is if you don't understand he is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you want to say that uh, God is one and he's not three, you'll never understand who God is. In the same way, that's how crucial it is to understand man is a three-part being. And I, I'm spending some time to stress this because of this evil teaching it's been around for so long that man is two-part being. No, these people, uh, in terms of understanding salvation, are just in darkness. Now, in other parts, you know, they, they may be okay. I'm not saying that. But in, in this specific matter, for sure, they have no clue of how salvation really works. Now, you can, under, you can experience salvation without understanding this truth. And I think a lot of people have. But it helps us to understand the kind of experiences we should have and should be seeking after when we're clear about the nature of our being and how salvation really works because we see and understand man is a three-part being. And I think that will become more clear why this is so important as we go through the different stages of salvation. So as the believers in Christ, we can look at salvation as taking place in three distinct stages, past, present, and future. And with each of these stages, you have two specific items that are taking place in each of those stages. These are the shun words that you have in the New Testament. We'll get into those in a minute. But I do want to add the caveat here. Uh, the new, it's not so cut and dried in the New Testament as I'm presenting it here. Uh, salvation, it's, it's more mysterious. But I think this does give us a good framework for understanding the basic process of salvation as long as we remember that caveat. It's more mysterious in the New Testament than one, the way I'm presenting it here. So the first stage took place in the past, and that's when we experience justification and regeneration. Again, these are the shun words, like I say. Justification relates to our being forgiven before God. That's based on the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. We believe in Christ and we're justified. So that's, it is, now it's justified, never sins. My sins are washed away. But what also happens the moment I believe in Christ, I am regenerated. I experience regeneration. That means I receive a life I never had before. 
Now I have the divine life. Now I'm a child of God. Praise the Lord for that. So being born anew, born again, as some people say, is not just about forgiveness. It's about receiving this life. And uh, as I'm thinking of it, I'm going to link. I'm, I'll link to a video that I've done about this. It, it illustrates this. We use four bottles to illustrate salvation. You can watch the video. It's only three minutes long. And I'll link to that below. That stresses salvation is not simply a matter of having our sins washed away. As wonderful as that is, there's a positive aspect as well. God wants to give us his divine life. That's what happens when we're regenerated. Now, here's where we begin to see the how crucial it is to understand we are three-part beings. Because you have to ask, how are we regenerated? Or to put it in another way, where are we regenerated? And John chapter 3, verse 6, tells us that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, it is our spirit that is regenerated when we are born anew. That's where the divine life enters into our being, is by our spirit. And that is the function of the spirit in a human being. Its function is to receive the divine life. It's that unique organ God gave to us when he breathed into us. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. He breathed himself into us, as that I quoted that statement earlier from the Concise Bible Dictionary. He set man in relation with himself. He gave us a human spirit that enables us to receive his divine life, and that is the function of the human spirit. So again, if you don't understand the difference between the spirit and the soul, you can never understand how salvation works. Now, I'll just say here very briefly that our soul is the organ that enables us to love God. That's what the Lord says, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, right? Our soul is what enables us to love God, but it's our spirit that enables us to receive the divine life. Those are the two distinct, distinct functions of the spirit and the soul. And I, I appreciate very much the uh, story uh, Witness Lee told. One time he was having uh, a meal with some believers uh, and the wife had a very hard time understanding why is it so important to, to, that we have a spirit and a soul and the difference between the two? Doesn't it, does it really matter? Does it really make any difference? And so they were having dessert. And I think Brother Lee asked the husband, he said, do you, do you uh, want some apple pie? And the, uh, the husband said, yes, I, I love apple pie, something like that. And then Brother Lee said, take it. And so he tried to take it with his hand. And Brother Lee said, no, no, no. You love this apple pie, take it with your heart. Take it right into your heart. Right? Your heart helps you to love the apple pie. That's all you need. And I think that helped them to understand, oh, in order to love the apple pie with their heart, they had to take the apple pie and eat it. And that's what enabled them to love the apple pie. Well, and it's a good illustration. It's a little funny, but it's a good illustration. What causes us to love God is with our heart is the fact that we receive him with our spirit. So it's so crucial to understand the different functions of these two different parts of our being. Just as we receive the divine life in our spirit when we open our heart to the Lord, and that enables us to be born again, all throughout our Christian life, we receive the divine life in an unceasing way as the spirit imparts himself into our spirit. That's the organ God has given us for receiving him as life into our being, and that causes us to love God. So that initial 
experience of being born anew together with the experience of having our sins forgiven. As I've said, that's justification and regeneration. That has taken place in the past. In the future, when the Lord comes back, we will be conformed to the image of God's Son in a full and complete way and glorified, raised up together with him in glory. Praise the Lord for that. Now, as I say, it's not quite so clear-cut in the New Testament as what I'm presenting here, because to some extent, as we'll see, we do experience glorification today. That's more of of an inward way. But the full experience of confirmation and glorification, that will take place in the future. That's when the divine life permeates even our physical body, just as it permeated the physical body of Christ when he was resurrected. When we are resurrected, our bodies are going to be glorified with the divine life. That's going to take place in the future when the Lord comes back. And we won't spend too much time talking about that today. But that's in the future. That's confirmation and glorification. Again, those are the the two shun words that relate to what's going to happen to us in the future. But what I do want to spend a little more time on now is what's happening to us today, what we should be experiencing today. And the two words that apply to us today are sanctification and transformation. Those are the two things we need to experience, we should be experiencing today in terms of our salvation. Now, at the beginning of our Christian life, our justification and our regeneration take place in an instant, the moment we believe in Christ. And at the end of our Christian life, when we're resurrected, that's also going to take place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-two. But sanctification and transformation are not instantaneous. They're different in that respect. These are these both involve an ongoing, lifelong process. This takes place, our sanctification and our transformation takes place throughout our entire life. And that makes it very different from what happens at the beginning of our Christian life and what happens at the end of our Christian life. And I think uh, many believers have some, com- some concept of sanctification. But even then, it might not be quite accurate. The sanctification, they feel, is we, we stay away from sin, we don't get involved in dirty things. Well, that's okay. That's not bad. But really what sanctification means is that we're separated unto God. It separates us from everything else apart from God, all the common things, even things that aren't necessarily that sinful. Everything that would take us away from God, we're separated from that because we're sanctified. More and more and more, we need to be sanctified in a positional sense. But in a sense, that's negative. It's taking things away. It's transformation that conforms us to the image of Christ. By transformation, what we mean is God is imparting his divine life not only into our spirit, but into our soul. Our soul is experiencing the divine life so that we are becoming a different kind of person, a person who is one with God in the way we think, in our feelings, and in our decisions. We really begin to manifest something of who Christ is. That's transformation. In regeneration, the divine life entered into our human spirit. Again, John 3, 6, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. But in transformation, it means the divine life is working in our soul. Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be fashioned according to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, 
That's what transformation is doing. It is renewing us. And here it stresses our mind because that's the leading part of our being, of our soul. The way we think. The Proverbs tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Our actual mind is being transformed because the divine life is renewing us, renewing our mind, so that we begin to think in the same way that Christ does. We begin to express the kind of thoughts that Christ has. Praise the Lord for that. And this is absolutely a matter of the Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. We've been saved by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the renewing here, this t- spoken of in Romans 12, 2, is absolutely a matter of the Spirit working in our mind, washing us and cleansing us, changing the kind of person who we are. Now, I'll just add a, a brief word here. Romans 8, I've I, I mentioned this because I saw one Bible teacher saying we were transformed the moment we were born anew. Well, you, in a general way you could say that, but not in the biblical sense. For sure, in, like you, when you see in Romans 8, you see the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And that for sure, whenever that happens, we're going to become a different person when we have our mind set on the spirit. So in a general way, you could say there's a kind of transformation that takes place. But that's because we have our mind set on the spirit in Romans chapter 8, and we're touching something of the Spirit. You always become a different person when that happens. But in Romans 12, the transformation spoken of here, it's not just that we have our mind set on the Spirit. It's because our mind now has really been transformed to make us, in terms of our constitution, a different person. Now, it's for sure it's still something of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we could never experience transformation. But it's working in us in a deeper way. So it's not just that we're setting our mind in our, on the Spirit and therefore I behave in a different way. It's that I have been changed constitutionally. My being is now different from what it was before I was first saved. I'm becoming a different person by this washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit that is working in my mind. And for sure, when we're transformed, it should very much affect our behavior. But transformation itself isn't so much speaking of that. It's it's speaking of this constitutional change in our being, a metabolic change, so to speak, because the old element is being purged away and something new is being brought into our being, namely the divine life. Let me give you an example. We would think maybe a person tends to lose his temper uh, before he's saved and uh, he has some problem with that. Then he gets saved, he becomes a Christian, and we might think, well, then the person will never lose his temper again. Well, no, you, that's right, you wouldn't lose your temper. But you may still express anger sometimes. It's not that you don't express anger. But when you express your anger, people are going to touch something of God, even in that anger. Now, anger is a hard one because that can be very close to sin. But I'm using, using this as an example to try to explain it's, it's not what we think sometimes, when we're talking about transformation, sometimes when people talk about transformation, you think, well, my goodness, somebody maybe could just take some, some kind of drug or something that would make them a, you know, a very calm person. Well, isn't, isn't that transformation? A transformation isn't like that. The key thing about transformation is however you are behaving, whether you're expressing anger or hatred or love or kindness, people touch something of God in every one of these virtues you're expressing. And sometimes there is a way, there's a place for expressing anger, just like when Jesus was in the temple overthrowing the tables. There was a time there to be angry. If you can't be angry in a way that expresses something of who God is, 
it's very possible that the kind of behavior you're manifesting is natural. It's not something divine. To look at it another way, of course, as Christians, we should love one another. But very often we love others according to our natural being, the natural capacity we have just as human beings for love. Even in our love, it's important. One's touch something divine. They have a sense there's something of the divine love here. It's not just a natural kind of good love. It's a love that really comes forth from who God is. That's when we're really experiencing transformation. When people touch something of Christ in all the different emotions, thoughts we express, or the decisions we make, when people are touching something of Christ, that's when we're experiencing transformation in the biblical sense. Now, there's one other verse that talks about transformation in relation to us in the New Testament. And I have to qualify that, as I'll explain in a little bit. But there's one other verse uh, that talks about our being transformed in the New Testament, which is a wonderful verse. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding and reflecting as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord's Spirit. Praise the Lord, saints, we're being transformed just by beholding Christ because he's imparting something of himself into our being as we behold him and we reflect something of who Christ is. What a glorious life this is, saints, to have this kind of experience being transformed even today. This is not something for the future. Today, we should be experiencing transformation into the same image of Christ from glory to glory. You just realize within me there's something working. Uh, and I've had a little experience of this sometimes. You just sense it's so wonderful when you sense the Lord's working in me in this way to impart something of his divine life into my being. It's not an easy process to go through. In the next chapter of Second Corinthians, uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, very, very striking verses. We do not lose heart. Our outer man is being consumed, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light tribulation is working for us in surpassing, even beyond surpassing measure, an eternal weight of glory. So you're going through these sufferings, but you're experiencing, as the Apostle Paul says here, an eternal weight of glory. That's, that's the life. That's the life that's worth living. That's what the human life is really all about. And it's through this process of transformation, God is making us one with himself. Because he's giving us his divine life, He's conforming us to the image of Christ so that we will be fully ready to see Christ when he returns. Now, I mentioned before, I had to qualify that when I said there's one other verse in the New Testament that talks about our being transformed. But there is another verse that in the New Testament that talks about transformation. And tragically, this verse is hidden from just about every Christian today. And the reason for that is the terrible translation of this verse in just about every every version of the Bible that you see. And I'm talking about Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And the, the sister verse as well, and Mark 9, chapter 2, also talks about the same thing. This is when the Lord went up onto the mountain with Peter and James and John. And to emphasize this point, I'll read this first in the New King James Version. Uh, verses Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up to on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So that's the New King James Version. But that's just a, a terrible, terrible translation. 
uh, of that verse, but everybody, everybody just about translates it that way. The problem is the word here is not transfigured. You see that word in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says Satan transfigures himself into an angel of light. The transfiguration only refers to an outward change. There's no change in nature. The actual word here in the way this should be translated in Matthew 17, 2 and Mark 9, 2, it should say he was transformed. It's the same Greek word that you have in Romans 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18. And I cannot understand why anybody would translate this word as transfigured. It makes no sense. I, I get angry about this because I didn't realize this myself until a few years ago that it was the same word. So the right way to read this, and I'll just read verse 2, it says, He was transformed before them, and his face shone as the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. And when you translate it this way, you know what happens, saints? You begin to realize what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 2, and in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, when he talks about transformation. Oh, the kind of transformation we should be experiencing today inwardly is the exact same kind of experience the Lord had on the mountain when he was transformed outwardly. That's what should be going on within us today, saints, as a believers in Christ. That's what transformation is. If you want to see a real picture of it, we are being transformed in our inward being. We should be getting transformed in our inward being. As I say, you know, in one reason why I had uh, for getting into this topic in this episode is to explain what it means to run the Christian race. What is the salvation of the soul? This is the salvation of the soul saints. This kind of transformation to conform us to the image of Christ, that's what prepares us to enter into glory with Christ based on the fact that our sins are forgiven. This is what transformation does. It brings us into the divine glory and makes us fully one with God in every aspect of our being. Today, it's inwardly. We're transformed. It refers, of course, mainly to our soul. But eventually, when the Lord comes back, this process will be completed when we are resurrected and brought into the divine glory, even in our body, when the divine life permeates our entire being. So that's the process of salvation. That's how God makes us one with himself. In our spirit, we're regenerated when we believe in Christ. In our soul, today, we should be experiencing transformation. So the glory of Christ is working within us even today. And when the Lord comes back, praise the Lord, we'll be resurrected, conformed fully to the image of Christ and glorified in Christ. And at that point, we'll be fully one with God in every aspect of our being. And God's original purpose in creating us will be fulfilled. Praise the Lord for that, saints. So that's as, as, as just a very brief thumbnail sketch of God's purpose and of our salvation, of transformation, of what it means to run the Christian race, what is the salvation of the soul. Now, I'm also going to link in the program notes to a little chart we have on this. And this is a chart. I have my own version of it. It's been around for 100 years or so. I've tried to make it a little nicer with some graphics and things. But I'll look at I'll, uh, post that below. And I encourage you to take a look at that because I go through these different, I should say the chart goes through these different stages in a very concise way to show us what is salvation. And I have this on my website, so that I'll, I'll be linking to that. But take a few minutes, go through these verses in the chart, and really consider this matter before the Lord. Then I think you'll have a much clearer idea of what is salvation, 
how it relates to God's purpose and what God's purpose really is. And then I think you'll have a blueprint for how you can go on with the Lord in your Christian life today. So I hope this has been helpful, and as the Lord allows, we will be back with you again next week. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.